Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 over uh, our evening, in our evening services over the next five months. So it's five weeks, but once a month, so five months. Um, and we're going to look at this, this whole section on the armor of God. Tonight we're only going to look at the first four verses, verses 10 through 13. But I think I'll read the whole thing up front since we're, um, and, and maybe every week, it's a relatively short passage just so we get the context uh, of the whole or we get a picture of the whole. Before we do that, though, let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word, we recognize that there are so many things that would stop us from understanding it. Uh, Our own ignorance, our own distractions, our own biases. Uh, We know that even on top of uh, of ourselves, our weaknesses, uh, there is the devil and uh, his angels, uh, evil spirits that we don't fully understand, and yet we know that they too would have us misunderstand uh, your word. And so we come and we ask for your Holy Spirit to be at work this evening, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive everything you have for us in your word. Uh, We pray that you would teach us tonight, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, you may know that uh, C.S. Lewis began his book, The Screwtape Letters, by saying this, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, Lewis says, and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I don't know whether you consider yourself a materialist or a magician, whether you are skeptical about the demonic world or superstitious about it, but both are errors, as Lewis says. And so if you're looking for me, on the one hand, to give a scientific explanation of demonic forces, or on the other, a how-to on exorcism, well, uh, you will likely be disappointed this evening. But I hope to do something better than both of those things over the next few months. Uh, that is, we're going to look at what Scripture has to say about standing against the schemes of the devil. Now, if you're not a Christian and don't believe in the value of Scripture, I hope that you might at least uh, be open, interested enough to find out what the Bible actually teaches about this somewhat strange subject before you dismiss it. So tonight we begin by looking at Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, focused on the, the battle itself, and then in the coming weeks we focus on how we engage in that battle. Of course, we'll get to a little bit of that tonight, but really that's as we go, we'll get into that more and more. And so our outline for this evening, you can see it's in your bulletin if you have one in front of you. Uh, the battle is real, the battle is spiritual, the battle is one, the battle is mundane, be strong and stand firm. First, the battle is real. I relatively recently had someone laugh at me because when asked, I said, yes, I believe the devil is real. The truth of the matter is, lots of people believe in a benevolent spiritual being, but many struggle when it comes to personal spiritual evil. We have caricatured the devil into a red man with horns and a tail, which makes it hard to take him seriously. Even some Christians struggle at this point. We have been so infected by the materialism of our age, by not just science, but scientism, right? Not just the idea that we can study the natural world, science, that's true and good, but the idea that therefore the natural world is all there is, scientism or materialism, that we find it hard to believe that there is anything more. Uh, now, that's actually not a very scientific proposition, right? What it's saying is that because we have eyes, everything must be visible. Or because we have ears, everything must be hearable. Because we have five senses, everything must be observable with those five senses. But of course, that's not a logically necessary conclusion. It's a, it's a religious commitment, really, held by faith by some who see science as the answer to the mysteries of life. And again, I would ask if, if that is you this evening, that you just be open throughout this series to hearing what scripture has to say about these things. You see, God has revealed to us that the battle is real. There are things which our eyes cannot see. And at times in, in scripture, God pulls back the curtain just a, a little bit so we get a glimpse of the unseen world. In the beginning, in the garden, Satan comes on the scene disguised as a serpent. After humanity's rebellion, God puts enmity, hatred between Satan and God's children. God, God determined that there must be a war. He doesn't want us to make peace with the devil. Make no peace with the devil. There are no good truces in this spiritual war. 
some people, when they get to this chapter of Ephesians, uh, think that Paul is changing the subject, that he's tacking on an appendix, right? We even have a name for it, right? It's the armor of God section. And uh, it's as if it's like, oh yeah, appendix one, the armor of God. Uh, you know, Paul has been talking, he talked in, in chapter one about the blessings that we have in Jesus. Uh, it, chapter two, he talked about the flow of individual and corporate salvation. He talked about the reality uh, uh, that, that this good news is a mystery which requires the spirit of God to be at work in us in order for us to comprehend it in chapter three. In chapters four and five and into six, then Paul spells out where we now how we now are to live as God's blessed and saved people. And then we get to chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And Paul begins to talk about a battle, a war, an enemy, or, or better, enemies, right? He calls rulers, authorities, and so on. And we'll talk about the particulars of this war as we go, but for now, let me ask this, right? Do you believe that we are in a war? Do you believe that life is a battle? You may think, well, who cares, right? I mean, what difference does it make, really? But if you are on a battlefield and you don't know it, that is detrimental to your well-being. If you think the devil is a joke and he turns out to be real, He's already won. If you have determined ahead of time to ignore your greatest threat, you don't have a chance. The battle is real. The second, the battle is spiritual. All of this battle language may make you uncomfortable. Uh, This is the problem with our day, you might think. Everybody sees the other person as the enemy. If we would only work together and try to get along, the world would be a better place. Now, others of you uh, maybe hear this battle language and you are rallied, right? Yeah, you think. Let's go out and fight those people. Well, let me encourage, uh, whichever way you take this, uh, let me encourage you to listen more carefully to what Paul is saying. Who is the enemy, according to Paul? Verse 11, we must stand against the schemes of the devil, In verse 12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Who are our enemies, according to Paul? The devil, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil. Now, uh, some people come to this passage and they try to tease out some kind of demonic hierarchy from these labels. In the end, that's all speculation. Uh, In fact, um, these labels don't so much refer to uh, different groups of people necessarily at all. The the first two are found in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, uh, rulers and authorities, referring to human leaders at that point. And Jesus says to his disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. And in that verse, rulers and authorities are are not different categories. Uh, They're just synonyms for various earthly leaders, right? That's all they're being used for in in that place. And in fact, each of these terms in verse 12 is at some point used to describe the devil himself, 
Uh, so Jesus says the devil is the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. He is the prince of the power of the air. The word there is the same word that is being used for authority here in verse 12. So he is the prince of the power of the air, the authority of the air, according to Ephesians 2, 2. He has the power of death, Hebrews 2, 14, same word used to describe the cosmic powers in verse uh, 12. And he is the evil one, according to Jesus and John and Paul and many, and many other places in Scripture. And so these terms uh, don't so much teach us about different orders of spiritual demonic beings, uh, but perhaps they do highlight different characteristics of the spiritual evil arrayed against us, right? So the devil and his angels, being spiritual beings, uh, have some kind of rule or authority in the world. Uh, they have the power to affect their ends, and those ends are, of course, evil. They are the spiritual forces of evil. We are in a battle, which is real. We must be aware. We must prepare. Uh, but this battle, is not, this battle is not physical. It's spiritual. It's not a battle to be fought with swords and guns, right? Worldly measures will not help. Political measures will not help. Academic education uh, will not help. All those things have their place, but they are not the solution. You can't fight spiritual enemies with worldly weapons. The world wants to tell us that our real problem is material, right? It's, it's brain dysfunction, or it's, our real problem is social. It's bad parenting or corrupt social structures. And that those things are real, but they are symptoms, not the cause. Our underlying problem is spiritual in nature, and the underlying battle is spiritual in nature. Uh, now, when someone is sick, you address the symptoms, but you don't just address the symptoms, right? Giving me Tylenol for a headache will help me feel better, but if my problem is a brain tumor, Tylenol only goes so far. And so, by all means, address the symptoms, but know what you're doing when you do that. The root of the problem, the war that we're in, is spiritual in nature. Do you know that? Do you know that the root of the problems with this world are spiritual? Are you focused on fighting a spiritual battle? Or are you distracted with other battles? The battles of this age, battles with flesh and blood. You know, distraction and misdirection are one of Satan's strategies. Has he taken you in? So the battle is real, the battle is spiritual, the battle is won. Maybe all this talk of spiritual war and demonic powers is frightening to you. I mean, maybe you're thinking, Luke, how am I going to sleep tonight? <laughs> the answer to that question is you must realize the battle is already won. The enemy has already been defeated. Now that is only hinted at in our passage but it is extremely important. Uh, but if we, if we go back to earlier in Ephesians, we see it quite clearly. Ephesians chapter one, Paul talks about the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The working of God's great might. And now in Ephesians six, Paul calls us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the same language, the strength of his might, Ephesians 6.10, and his great might in Ephesians 1.19, are the same Greek words. We are to be strong. How? With the power that raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, uh, what Paul is praying for in Ephesians 1, 19 and following is that the Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. 
And then he spelled that out, really, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse, uh, through uh, verse, uh, chapter 5. And now Paul says, be strong, therefore, in that might, in the might of God demonstrated in the resurrection. The power that overcame death is now ours in Jesus. Christ has risen. Now you can have that same power in you. Christ won the battle. Now go fight your battles in his strength. Ephesians 1.21, Paul goes on that Christ was raised and seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. You notice uh, uh, rule and authority, right? The same language that's here in Ephesians 6.10. Christ has been placed over all spiritual authorities and powers. They have been put under his feet, Ephesians 1.22. And Paul put it differently in Colossians 2.15, he says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ and his cross. The rulers and authorities have been disarmed by Christ and placed under his feet. They are a defeated enemy. They may squeal and squirm, but their doom is sure. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, at the end, Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so you take these two pictures and you put them together and you get this. All spiritual powers have been placed under Christ's feet in principle. They are a defeated enemy. But now he is in the process of placing them under his feet in practice. Uh, They have been disarmed and dominated, and now like rats fleeing the exterminator, he is catching them one by one. But they know their doom is sure. We see Satan's defeat pictured in Revelation 12. Uh, Brian read some of that for us earlier. After the work of Christ from the incarnation to his ascension to the right hand of the throne of God, which are both mentioned in Revelation 12, 5, we read this again in, in verses 7 through 10. John says in Revelation 12, now war arose in heaven. This is after, again, after Christ's work, his birth, his ascension. War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Christ has ascended and Satan has been thrown down. Revelation 20 uses uh, similar but slightly different imagery to describe the same reality. In chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, we read, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, you may wonder, well, if there's a spiritual war going on, how can Satan be bound? Well, two things. First, it's the same as all spiritual powers have been placed under Christ's feet in principle and are being placed under Christ's feet in actuality. But second, think about it this way. The fact that most of you in this room, maybe everybody in this room, I don't know, but the fact that at least most of you in this room are Gentile and not Jewish 
and yet have come to know the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, means Satan has been bound. Right? Revelation 20 verse 3 says that Satan was bound and sealed. Why? That he might deceive the nations no longer. The gospel has gone forth to the ends of the earth. Satan's hold on this world has been cut. And make no mistake, right, this language of Satan being cast down and bound is language that refers to the spread of the gospel. When Jesus is defending his own casting out demons, he says in Matthew 12, 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is plundering the devil of his captives as the gospel goes forth. Paul said earlier in Ephesians 4, 8, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives. How? He first bound the strong man. In Luke 9, Jesus sent out the 12 and gave them authority over demons and sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and preach the gospel. And in Luke 10, he did that again with the 72. And that is where we find that the famous missionary passage, right, where Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And the 72 go out to prepare the way for Jesus. And when they get back, they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And as the gospel goes forth, Satan is overthrown. How? Because Christ has triumphed over him in the cross. Through death, the book of Hebrews says, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, by his death for sin, has taken away the one power Satan had, the power to accuse us before the Father, to make a claim of justice that we deserve death. Well, Jesus has borne that death in our place. And so Satan's accusations hold no weight before the throne of God. Oh, he continues to make a big show. He wants to scare us with his pyrotechnics. He wants to intimidate us, but he's all talk. The accuser of our brothers has been cast down that he might deceive the nations no more. The proof of that is that the gospel goes forth. Every time someone comes to faith in Jesus, Satan's weakness is shown. Now, that doesn't mean we can ignore him. Satan is weak before the power of Christ. And so we must be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. But before we get to that exhortation, we, we have to see one more thing. The battle is real, spiritual, and one. And fourth, the battle is mundane. What do I mean by that? What does this battle actually look like? There is a caricature of spiritual warfare in the church, of demons kind of bouncing off the walls. Right? Movies like Poltergeist and The Exorcist popularize a, a fantastic view of battle with spiritual forces. We think spiritual warfare must mean that demons are under every rock and tree and hiding inside your toaster. If I'm angry, I must have a demon of anger. If I, if I lust, I must have a demon of lust. Now, some of this view grows out of a misreading of the Gospels. In the Gospels, Jesus freed demon-possessed people by casting out their demons, sometimes with quite a show. The apostles do this a number of times in the book of Acts. The question is, is this the normal mode of ministry for us now in the church? Were, were, were Jesus and the apostles setting us an example for how to engage in spiritual warfare? Or was something else going on? 
And how do we answer that question? Well, first, while uh, there are, are quite a few exorcisms in the Gospels, uh, well, actually, three of the four Gospels, there are none in John, or there's one, depending on how you read it. We'll get there in John in like 2026, I don't know when, but... Uh, <laughs> While there are quite a few exorcisms in in three of the four Gospels, and while there are a handful of mentions of unclean spirits in the book of Acts, once we get to the New Testament letters, such things disappear. For that matter, once you start thinking about it, demon possession and exorcism don't really show up in the Old Testament either, with a very few possible exceptions. Now think about this, for the thousands of years covered by the Old Testament, there are a few possible mentions of demonic possession. Then we get to the Gospels, three of the four of them, demons seem everywhere. Then we get to the New Testament letters and they slip back into obscurity. Paul doesn't explain to any church how to perform an exorcism. He doesn't say what to do if someone in your church is possessed. Now the New Testament letters are written to answer questions and to respond to problems in the New Testament church. But if demon possession was a common thing, you would have thought somebody at some point in some church would have asked a question, or somebody would have gotten it wrong and needed Paul's correction. But he is silent on the issue. And so then we ask the question, why this concentration of demonic activity during the life of Christ? Could there possibly be a reason why the demons would would show up in force during the lifetime of Jesus? And of course, to ask that question is to answer it, isn't it? Of course, they would show up during the lifetime of Jesus. He is the Son of God come in the flesh to overthrow them. Wouldn't Satan love to undermine his work? And could it possibly be that Jesus would handle demonic activity differently than he expects us to do? Again, the answer is, of course, think about it. Jesus paid taxes by having Peter fish for a coin. You remember that? Uh, He healed sickness with a word. He gave sight to the blind with spit and mud. He fixed Peter's rash behavior by restoring the cutoff ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I did something stupid, Jesus didn't simply show up and fix my mistake. And the last time I paid taxes, I didn't go fishing for the money in the river. The last time I was sick, I took medicine. Now, it's it's not that God doesn't still work, but God works in different ways at different times. When Israel wandered in the wilderness, you may remember God fed them with bread from heaven. When did that stop? Do you remember? For 40 years, they ate bread from heaven. But the moment they got into the promised land and ate of the fruit of that land, the bread from heaven stopped. In the wilderness, God provided miraculously. In the promised land, God provided through the mundane. When Jesus showed up, he performed miracles. God was showing us something about his son. The apostles, too, performed miracles, what Paul calls the signs of an apostle, because God was affirming the apostolic message. But now God calls us to walk by faith in the midst of the mundane, to rely on God's providential provision rather than holding out for a miracle. And when Paul describes spiritual warfare, he doesn't describe demons bouncing off the walls. For that matter, he doesn't describe demon possession at all. He describes something much more ordinary. Can I mention uh, briefly the, the four 
key ways the devil seeks to attack the people of God. The schemes, Paul talks about the schemes of the devil. What do those schemes look like? Uh, they're, they're actually fairly simple and straightforward. And, and we could add more to this list, but this is a pretty short, simple, and I think helpful list. The first scheme of the devil is deception. The devil wants to undermine our faith. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1 that in the last days, which in Paul's language means today, right? The day that he was living in, every, every day between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ, that's the last days. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1 that in the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, right? Lies, heresy, deception. This is Satan's number one strategy for undermining the people of God. The second is temptation. The devil is called the tempter. He wants to enslave us to sin, to lead us away from our Father and his blessing to the empty pursuits of this world. So deception, temptation. The third is accusation. Satan wants to overwhelm us with guilt. He is the accuser of the brethren. We see this in the book of Job in chapter one. We see it in Zechariah chapter three. Satan wants to accuse us before the Father, but being now unable to do that because of the work of Christ he will accuse us to ourselves. First, he tells us, sin's not so bad, God will forgive you. And then once we take the bait, he tells us we're horrible sinners whom God could never forgive. So we have deception, temptation, accusation, and fourth is oppression. Satan used raiding parties and forces of nature to take everything from Job. Then he struck his body itself with a disease. In Revelation 2, Jesus says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. Satan will use whatever he can to oppress, to persecute, to destroy. Why? He wants to undermine our faith, to convince us that God is not good and that he doesn't love us. And he will do that through lies, through temptations, through guilt, through shame, through persecution, whatever tool will work on you to undermine your faith. Verse 13 here in Ephesians 6 is an interesting phrase that we need to note. Uh, it, Paul says, we must take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Uh, what is the evil day? Well, there, are, there are three options that commentators have come up with, more if you combine them in various ways. But the evil day could be this present evil age. Paul says in Galatians 1.4 that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So it could just mean this present day in which we live. The evil day could be particular moments of trouble in your life, particular moments of temptation or trial that you face, that the devil brings your way. Or the evil day could be the day of judgment, which for many will be a day of woe. I think actually the third is the least likely because for Paul, the last day is a day of rejoicing for God's people. He wouldn't call it the evil day for the people of God. Paul is telling us here how to stand now against Satan and his works, not in the future in the face of God's judgment. But I think the first two both have merit and can be taken together. We live in this present evil age with all of its trials and sufferings, dangers, toils, and snares. But while the battle does not stop in this life, there are moments, particular times, where the battle rages more fiercely times of temptation and trial that come and go, that ebb and flow. And Paul wants us to be ready for those days. 
And so our, our very real spiritual battle takes place in the mundane as we face lies, are tempted to sin, deal with guilt and shame, and undergo trouble, pain, and persecution. By God's grace, for most of us, those things are, are not dialed up to 10 at every moment, but they are always there, even if only in the background. The devil does not sleep. And so we must be strong and stand firm. Now you might wonder, how do I know? How do I know when the devil is coming at me? How do I know if this particular temptation, this particular lie, this particular guilt or shame or trouble is the world, the flesh, or the devil? Uh, what, what do I mean by those three? You may have heard those put together. They're, it's pretty common, right? By the flesh, by my flesh, we mean the internal desires of this age that are misdirected and out of bounds or out of control. By the world, we mean the people and structures of this age as they are aligned against God and disciple us in sin rather than in holiness. And by the devil, of course, we mean, as he is called elsewhere, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the father of lies, the tempter, the murderer, the accuser of the brethren. And any temptation, any doubt may come from any or all of those. Right? Is, this, is this my desire? Is it, is it in my heart? Then it's clearly coming on some level from my flesh, my participation in the brokenness of the present age. But is the world, my context, my situation, subtly or not so subtly, influencing me towards sin and unbelief? That, that is the world, according to Scripture, seeking to influence, seeking to disciple us in sin. And the devil, of course, could be involved in both of those. He's, he's normally behind the scenes, and he uses means. He, uses, he used the Sabaeans to steal Job's oxen. He used fire from heaven to destroy Job's sheep. What that was, I don't know. Don't ask. I'm not sure. Uh, he used the Chaldeans to steal Job's camels and a great wind to kill Job's children. The devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, John 13, 2. A messenger of Satan directly caused Paul's suffering somehow in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Internal thoughts and external temptations, lies, accusations, and suffering can all be the direct result of demonic attack. And, and I, don't, I don't think we so much need to figure out which one, as if only, there was only one source of our current struggle. Uh, rather, we understand the role of each in our present suffering. Everything is spiritual war. Not because there are demons lurking in your closet, but because every moment is a battle for our hearts. And sometimes I fall asleep in that battle. And I, I need others in my life to, to maybe at times gently say, hey, Luke, wake up. And sometimes I need a slap in the face or a bucket of cold water over my head to be reminded that I need to wake up and fight in this battle. And so Paul says, finally, be strong and stand firm. Prepare yourselves for battle. The battle is real, so we need to be ready. The battle is spiritual, so we need to focus in the right direction. The battle is won, so we can have confidence for the fight. The battle is also mundane. It's ordinary. It's every day. But what does the fighting actually look like? How do we engage in this battle? Well, on the one hand, that's what we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. Second Sunday, second service, all spring long, but I can't just leave you there. So uh, let me make some preliminary observations. First, Paul says, be strong in the Lord. The strength for this battle does not come from you. It is God's strength found in Jesus. 
demonstrated in his resurrection. Be strong in the Lord, that is in Christ, who has been raised from the dead and seated in heaven far above all rule and authority, and who is presently placing all of his enemies under his feet. Be strong in that Lord. How do we do that? I think Paul's explanation is, here's how, put on the whole armor of God. I think, he's, I think he's saying, when he says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, verse 11 is an explanation of that. Put on the whole armor of God. And as we will see, as we look at the armor in the coming weeks, the armor of God is first uh, the armor God wears and the armor Christ wore. The book of Isaiah, which we're going we're to be looking at a, a lot as we look at Ephesians 6, Uh, The book of Isaiah will make this plain. God in Christ clothed himself for battle. We now clothe ourselves with Christ. To put on the armor of God is, as Paul says in Romans 13, 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What we will see over the coming sermons is, how do I prepare for spiritual battle? I put on Christ piece by piece, as it were. And so we find strength in the Lord by putting on Christ. Then what do we do? We stand. That's it. Just stand. You see, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not your battle. It's not my battle. It's his battle. It's not that there's nothing for us to do, but it is his fight. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they ended up stuck between the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh. And what were they to do, right? They they feared greatly. They cried out to the Lord. They complained to Moses. And Moses said this in Exodus 14, 13 to 14. He said, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Peter put our spiritual battle like this. In 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9, he said, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. That phrase could be translated, stand against him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Stand. What do you mean stand? Stand firm in your faith. John says in 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We are in a battle. The battle is mundane. It's a part of normal life, not an appendix nor an afterthought, something, not something unusual or sporadic. It is really a battle for our minds, for our faith, the lies, the accusations, the temptations, the shame, the guilt that Satan tries to lay on us. Even trial on the devil's part is there to get us to doubt. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will stand firm in your faith. And if you want to know more of what that means, come back in the evening services and we'll find out together. Let's pray. Our Father, we we do want to know more of what that means. We want to know what it looks like to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to stand firm in our faith in our battle against the evil one. And so we pray that you would teach us 
Teach us as we come to your word. Teach us as we, as we read, as we pray, as we, as we cry out to you. We pray that you would teach us how to stand firm in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.